The Book of Enos. Enos was the son of Jacob, therefore the nephew of Nephi and the grandson of Lehi. In the history of Enos, we are confronted with a prophet who lived an incredibly long time. Enos says in verse 25 that he was alive and serving as a prophet and a historian of the Nephites clear down to 420 B.C. We have already seen that Jacob, the father of Enos, also lived to be at least a hundred, so here are two prophets whose lives came close to extending over a couple of centuries. Behold, it came to pass that I, Enos, knowing my father that he was a just man, for he taught me in his language and also in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and blessed be the name of my God for it. Enos says his father Jacob was a just man and taught Enos in his language. All of the Nephites spoke and wrote Hebrew, but the leaders of the people were required to know classical Egyptian as well. Jacob had carefully taught this shorthand type of Egyptian to Enos. Notice that Enos also credits his father with trying to teach him the commandments of the Lord. And I will tell you of the wrestle which I had before God, before I received a remission of my sins. However, from verse 2, it would appear that during the earlier years of Enos, he had resisted the teachings of his father and committed some rather serious sins. Enos says he not only felt compelled to confess his sins, but he had to wrestle with the Lord in spirit, hoping he might gain forgiveness of them. Behold, I went to hunt beasts in the forests, and the words which I had often heard my father speak concerning eternal life and the joy of the saints sunk deep into my heart. Enos says it was while he was on a hunting expedition that he began to reflect on the teachings of his father concerning eternal life and the joy of those who became saints. It is interesting that the word saints is used throughout the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. It refers to the members of the church of God. Saints are those who have consecrated their lives to God and live under a solemn covenant. And it appears that on this hunting trip, Enos suddenly realized that his life had not been in harmony with the teachings of his father. And my soul hungered, and I kneeled down before my Maker, and I cried unto him in mighty prayer and supplication for mine own soul. And all the day long did I cry unto him, yea. And when the night came, I did still raise my voice high, that it reached the heavens. Enos says that at this moment his soul hungered to be closer to his heavenly Father. Notice that he didn't just pray in his mind, but he knelt down and cried out in mighty prayer and supplication that his soul might be cleansed of his sins. It is rather amazing that he not only cried out to the Lord for a whole day in confessing his sins and seeking forgiveness, but his prayers extended into the night. And there came a voice unto me, saying, Enos, thy sins are forgiven thee, and thou shalt be blessed. 
Finally, Enos received a communication from the Lord. He says that it was a voice, but in verse 10, he says it did not speak so he could hear it, but spoke to him in his mind. The voice said that the sins of Enos were forgiven and he would be blessed. And I, Enos, knew that God could not lie. Wherefore, my guilt was swept away. And I said, Lord, how is it done? And he said unto me, Because of thy faith in Christ, whom thou hast never before heard nor seen, and many years pass away before he shall manifest himself in the flesh. Wherefore, go to, thy faith hath made thee whole. Enos must have committed some serious sins, but after the voice told him he was forgiven, the burden of guilt melted away. This brought about such a change in Enos, he could not help asking how this was done. Then the Lord told him something rather amazing. He said that because of the death of Christ, this marvelous atoning sacrifice made it possible for his sins to be forgiven. Notice that this reference to the death of Christ was probably around more than 500 years before Christ was even born. But the certainty that Jesus would fulfill his great mission was such that even Adam and Eve were forgiven their transgression in the Garden of Eden because of Christ's atonement, and that was 4,000 years before Jesus was born. This is described in Moses chapter 6, verse 53. Now it came to pass that when I had heard these words, I began to feel a desire for the welfare of my brethren the Nephites. Wherefore I did pour out my whole soul unto God for them. And while I was thus struggling in the spirit, behold, the voice of the Lord came into my mind again, saying, I will visit thy brethren according to their diligence in keeping my commandments. I have given unto them this land, and it is a holy land, and I curse it not, save it be for the cause of iniquity. Wherefore I will visit thy brethren, according as I have said, and their transgressions will I bring down with sorrow upon their own heads. In verse 8 the Lord had told Eni to go forth because his faith had made him whole, but he did not go forth. Instead, he began hungering for the welfare of his brethren. He prayed for the Nephites and poured out his soul on their behalf until the Lord said he would bless the Nephites, providing they kept the commandments. And after I, Enos, had heard these words, my faith began to be unshaken in the Lord, and I prayed unto him with many long strugglings for my brethren the Lamanites. And it came to pass that after I had prayed and labored with all diligence, the Lord said unto me, I will grant unto thee according to thy desires, because of thy faith. Now this extended sense of compassion which Enos felt for his own people was extended to his hostile brethren, the Lamanites. By this time the Lamanites were becoming a plague to the Nephites and making war against them continually. Notice that Enos says his prayer was not just a recitation of words, but a powerful struggle in the spirit. 
Finally, the Lord consented to bless the Lamanites also according to the desires of Enos. And now behold, this was the desire which I desired of him, that if it should so be that my people the Nephites should fall into transgression, and by any means be destroyed, and the Lamanites should not be destroyed, that the Lord God would preserve a record of my people the Nephites, even if it so be by the power of his holy arm, that it might be brought forth at some future day unto the Lamanites, that perhaps they might be brought unto salvation. For at the present our strugglings were vain in restoring them to the true faith, and they swore in their wrath that if it were possible they would destroy our records and us, and also all the traditions of our fathers. Wherefore, I, knowing that the Lord God was able to preserve our records, I cried unto him continually, for he had said unto me, Whatsoever thing ye shall ask in faith, believing that ye shall receive, in the name of Christ ye shall receive it. It turned out that the thing Enos desired for the Lamanites was that they would not destroy the records of the Nephites. The threat of the Lamanites had been to not only wipe out the Nephites, but also destroy their records. Enos undoubtedly had heard his father Jacob describe the near extinction of the Nephites, which he had seen in vision. And Enos therefore prayed that even though the Nephites may be wiped out as a people, that the Lord would preserve their records so they could come forth in the latter days and bring salvation to the remnant of Lehi's seed as well as the Gentiles who had come to take possession of the land. And I had faith, and I did cry unto God that he would preserve the records. And he covenanted with me that he would bring them forth unto the Lamanites in his own due time. And I, Enos, knew it would be according to the covenant which he had made. Wherefore my soul did rest. And the Lord said unto me, Thy fathers have also required of me this thing, and it shall be done unto them according to their faith, for their faith was like unto thine. The Lord not only promised to grant the desire of Enos concerning the records of the Nephites, but advised him that this was not a new request. The Lord said the forefathers of Enos had also asked that the records be preserved, and the Lord said this desire would be granted. Now it came to pass that I, Enos, went about among the people of Nephi, prophesying of things to come, and testifying of the things which I had heard and seen. Enos returned from his hunting expedition and went forth among the people of Nephi and testified to them of his marvelous spiritual experiences. Apparently Enos had also received further revelations in addition to the ones we have described because it says he went forth prophesying of things to come and testifying of things he had both seen and heard. And I bear record that the people of Nephi did seek diligently to restore the Lamanites unto the true faith in God. But our labors were vain. Their hatred was fixed, and they were led by their evil nature that they became wild and ferocious and a bloodthirsty people, full of idolatry and filthiness, 
feeding upon beasts of prey, dwelling in tents and wandering about in the wilderness with a short skin girdle about their loins and their heads shaven. And their skill was in the bow and in the scimitar and the axe. And many of them did eat nothing save it was raw meat. And they were continually seeking to destroy us. It was always a source of great sorrow to the Nephite prophets that they could not penetrate the barrier of vicious hostility with which the Lamanites had surrounded themselves. Enos wants us to know that in his day the Nephites worked diligently to restore the Lamanites to a true faith in God. The same thing had been done by his father Jacob in his day. But Enos says it was with him as it was with his father. The missionary efforts were completely in vain. The hatred of the Lamanites was fixed and determined. They exploited the most degraded capacities of human nature so that they became wild and ferocious and bloodthirsty people who were practicing idolatry and were surrounded by filthiness. It says they ate beasts of prey, that is, carnivorous meat-eating animals such as the lion. Instead of building cities, they dwelt in tents and wandered about in the wilderness, protected by nothing but a short skin girdle and with their heads shaven. Apparently, they did not cultivate fields, manufacture cloth, or maintain domestic flocks. Their major skill was in the bow and the scimitar and the axe. Many of them lived on nothing but raw meat and spent their entire energy seeking ways and means to destroy the Nephites. And it came to pass that the people of Nephi did till the land and raise all manner of grain and of fruit and flocks of herds and flocks of all manner of cattle of every kind and goats and wild goats and also many horses. The Nephites, on the other hand, did till the land, and they did raise all manner of grains and fruit. They also raised flocks and herds of sheep, also all manner of cattle and cows, oxen and steers. They also raised many goats, both wild and domestic, and they had many horses. Now the word horses is mentioned thirteen times in the Book of Mormon, but only up to the time of the great destruction which occurred in America at the time of the death of Christ. After that, the subject of horses is never mentioned again. By the time Columbus reached America, the horses seemed to have become an unknown creature in the Western Hemisphere. And there were exceeding many prophets among us, and the people were a stiff-necked people, hard to understand. And there was nothing save it was exceeding harshness, preaching and prophesying of wars and contentions and destructions, and continually reminding them of death and the duration of eternity, and the judgments and the power of God, and all these things, stirring them up continually to keep them in the fear of the Lord. I say there was nothing short of these things, and exceeding great plainness of speech would keep them from going down speedily to destruction. And after this manner do I write concerning them. And I saw wars between the Nephites and Lamanites in the course of my days. We learn that in spite of the Lord's blessings to the Nephites, it was necessary to raise up many prophets among them. They were a stiff-naked people and hard to teach. 
The prophets found that about the only thing that would work on the hearts of the deteriorating Nephites was the shock treatment. Instead of feeding them spiritually upon the more beautiful aspects of the gospel, it was necessary to use exceeding harshness in preaching to them. There had to be a constant reference to the prophecies of wars and destruction that would come upon them. They had to be continually reminded of death and the duration of eternity and the judgments of God which awaited them. Instead of loving God, the Nephites of this era had to be kept in a state of fear of the Lord and constantly reminded of his capacity to punish them for their wickedness. Enos said he had to lash their minds with vivid plainness of speech just to keep them from going down speedily to destruction. Enos says he saw many wars between the Nephites and Lamanites during his lifetime. And during all this time the prophets faced opposition both from within and without. And it came to pass that I began to be old. And an hundred and seventy and nine years had passed away from the time that our father Lehi left Jerusalem. And I saw that I must soon go down to my grave, having been wrought upon by the power of God that I must preach and prophesy unto this people and declare the word according to the truth which is in Christ. And I have declared it in all my days, and have rejoiced in it above that of the world. Now we come to the passage which suggests that Enos was extremely old by the time he came to the close of his ministry. Enos says he began to be old and could feel the approach of the end. He said that a hundred and seventy-nine years had passed since Lehi had left Jerusalem, and this would bring us down to 420 B.C. Enos knew he must soon go down to the grave after a full lifetime of being wrought upon by the powers of God that caused him to go forth and preach and prophesy among the people throughout his long life. This resulted in joy and satisfaction beyond anything which would come from the things of the world. And I soon go to the place of my rest, which is with my Redeemer, for I know that in Him I shall rest. And I rejoice in the day when my mortal shall put on immortality, and shall stand before Him. Then shall I see His face with pleasure, and He will say unto me, Come unto me. Ye blessed, there is a place prepared for you in the mansions of my Father. Amen. Enos felt, as had his father Jacob, that his life had been hard. He longed for a day of rest. He said he would indeed enjoy the respite which would come when he was united with his Redeemer. He said he looked forward to the day when his sick body, which was then hastening toward the trauma of death, would put on immortality and stand before God to be judged. Enos said he expected to see the face of the Lord with pleasure and hear him say that Enos had a place prepared among the mansions of the Father. This concept of heavenly mansions is not found in our Old Testament. It is mentioned for the first time in John chapter 14, verse 2. Thus we leave Enos, a deeply repentant man who had become a great prophet. Now we come to the book of Jerem. This book is only one chapter long. 
In 420 B.C., Jerem received the records from his father Enos. Jerem was the grandson of Jacob, the grandnephew of Nephi, and therefore the great-grandson of Lehi. Now behold, I, Jerem, write a few words according to the commandment of my father Enos, that our genealogy may be kept. And as these plates are small, and as these things are written for the intent of the benefit of our brethren the Lamanites, wherefore it must needs be that I write a little. But I shall not write the things of my prophesying nor of my revelations, for what could I write more than my fathers have written? For have not they revealed the plan of salvation? I say unto you, Yea, and this sufficeth me. Jerem says that one of the reasons his fathers wanted this record preserved from generation to generation was so that their genealogy could be preserved. Nevertheless, Jerem says that these plates are small and were written primarily for the benefit of the Lamanites. He therefore warns that while he must write a little, it will not include any of his prophesyings nor his revelations. Jerem doubted that he could add anything significant to the writings of his fathers. He says that since they have described the whole plan of salvation, he is satisfied to let the record stand without encumbering it with repetitive revelations given during his lifetime. It is for this same reason that the modern canon of revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants is kept rather brief. Behold, it is expedient that much should be done among this people because of the hardness of their hearts, and the deafness of their ears, and the blindness of their minds, and the stiffness of their necks. Nevertheless, God is exceeding merciful unto them, and has not as yet swept them off from the face of the land. And there are many among us who have many revelations, for they are not all stiff-necked, and as many as are not stiff-necked and have faith, have communion with the Holy Spirit, which maketh manifest unto the children of men according to their faith. Jerem states the tremendous work must be done among the Nephites because of the hardness of their hearts, the deafness of their ears, the blindness of their minds, and the stiffness of their necks. In fact, he felt that if it had not been for the sufferance of a merciful God, they would have been swept from the face of the land long ago. In resolving to get to work and stir up the people, he assures us that he is not alone. He says many of Jerem's associates had been receiving revelations and receiving communion with the Holy Spirit according to their faith. And now, behold, two hundred years had passed away. And the people of Nephi had waxed strong in the land. They observed to keep the law of Moses and the Sabbath day holy unto the Lord. And they profaned not, neither did they blaspheme. And the laws of the land were exceedingly strict. And they were scattered upon much of the face of the land, and the Lamanites also. And they were exceeding more numerous than were they of the Nephites. And they loved murder, and would drink the blood of beasts. And it came to pass that they came many times against us, the Nephites, to battle. But our kings and our leaders were mighty men in the faith of the Lord. And they taught the people the ways of the Lord, 
Wherefore we withstood the Lamanites, and swept them away out of our lands, and began to fortify our cities, or whatsoever place of our inheritance. Jerem appears to have stopped writing in this record right after verse 4. Some twenty years later, he picks up the stylus again to tell us what has been happening. He says that two hundred years have now passed away since Lehi's colony left Jerusalem. He is also pleased to report that all of the hard work of the past twenty years have not been in vain. The Nephites have become strong again in the land. They have been observing the law of Moses and keeping the Sabbath day holy. They no longer profane the name of God nor blaspheme. In fact, he says, the enforcement of the laws of God by the leaders of the people have been exceedingly strict. All through the Book of Mormon, it will be noted that when the laws of the Lord are strictly enforced, the people prosper. The Nephites have been multiplying and spreading out across the land. And so have the Lamanites. In fact, the Lamanites have exceeded the Nephites in number. Unfortunately, the Lamanites continue to indulge in preying upon their fellow men and committing murder. They also drink the blood of beasts. Jerem says the Lamanites have been attacking his people over and over again. Fortunately, however, the leaders of the Nephites are mighty men with great faith in the Lord who have taught the people the ways of the Lord. Therefore, they have succeeded in driving the Lamanites out of the land each time they have attacked. Recently, the Nephites have begun to fortify their cities and their lands which they occupy. And we multiplied exceedingly and spread upon the face of the land, and became exceeding rich in gold and in silver and in precious things, and in fine workmanship of wood, in buildings and in machinery, and also in iron and copper, and brass and steel, making all manner of tools of every kind to till the ground, and weapons of war, yea, the sharp-pointed arrow, and the quiver, and the dart, and the javelin, and all preparations for war. And thus being prepared to meet the Lamanites, they did not prosper against us, But the word of the Lord was verified, which he spake unto our fathers, saying that, Inasmuch as ye will keep my commandments, ye shall prosper in the land. And it came to pass that the prophets of the Lord did threaten the people of Nephi, according to the word of God, that if they did not keep the commandments, but should fall into transgression, they should be destroyed from off the face of the land. Not only have the Nephites multiplied, but they have become exceedingly rich in precious metals and precious things, probably referring to jewels. They have also become great artisans in working with wood and constructing great buildings and manufacturing certain kinds of machinery. How we wish we could discover just what this word really means. Did these ancients stumble onto the secret of power tools and power equipment? Jerem says they became expert in working iron, copper, and brass, and steel. He also says they made tools of every kind for agriculture and also manufactured weapons of war. Someday we may discover that this verse contains a hint of the manner in which the ancient inhabitants of America cut and transported over great distances the giant monolithic stones, sometimes weighing over a hundred tons, which were used in many places in South America. 
In Jerem's generation, the Nephites verified the literal reality of God's promises that if they would obey his commandments, they would prosper in the land. Jerem frankly states that the prophets of the Lord had to actually threaten the people and vigorously warn them of the consequences of their ignoring the Lord's declaration, wherein he told them if they fell into transgression, they would be destroyed as a people. Wherefore the prophets and the priests and the teachers did labor diligently, exhorting with all long-suffering the people to diligence, teaching the law of Moses and the intent for which it was given, persuading them to look forward unto the Messiah and believe in him to come as though he already was. And after this manner did they teach them. And it came to pass that by so doing they kept them from being destroyed upon the face of the land, for they did prick their hearts with the word, continually stirring them up unto repentance. So the present happy condition of the Nephites really came about as a result of the prophets, the priests, and the teachers laboring with the greatest diligence to get them to observe the law of Moses and to look forward to the coming of the Messiah and believe on him as though he had come already. Jerem certifies that as a result of the Nephites responding to the pleas of their spiritual leaders, they had indeed escaped a genocidal massacre at the hands of the Lamanites. Nevertheless, it had been necessary to prick the hearts of the people continually and stir them up into righteousness. And it came to pass that two hundred and thirty and eight years had passed away after the manner of wars and contentions and dissensions for the space of much of the time. And I, Jerem, do not write more, for the plates are small. But behold, my brethren, ye can go to the other plates of Nephi, for behold, upon them the records of our wars are engraven, according to the writings of the kings or those which they caused to be written. And I deliver these plates into the hands of my son, Omni, that they may be kept according to the commandments of my fathers. Jerem appears to have stopped writing a second time after finishing verse 12. Now for the third time he picks up the stylus to make his last entry in these small plates. He says, Two hundred and thirty years have now passed away, bringing us down to 361 B.C. This means that thirty-eight years have passed away since verse 12. He says this interval has been occupied with additional wars and dissensions much of the time. We never learn for certain whether the wonderful prosperity and righteousness of the Nephites described in verses 8 to 11 survived during the interval of 38 years, or whether some of the contentions and dissensions which Jerem mentioned were among the Nephites themselves. Omni verse 3, which we will read in a moment, would suggest that Jerem ended his days during a period of Nephite decline, when they were no longer being pricked in their hearts when the leaders admonished them. Whatever the sad story might have been, Jerem elects not to write it on these plates. He says they are small, and if anyone wishes to get the details of their history, he will have to examine the historical plates that is, the large plates of Nephi where the details have been recorded. Jerem states that he is delivering the small plates into the hands of Omni, that they may continue to be kept, 
and inscribed and preserved according to the commandments of the Lord. We note from verse 13 that Jerem seems to have received the plates from his father Enos around 420 B.C. And since he did not turn them over to Omni until 361 B.C., we know that Jerem had custody of these records 81 years and must have lived to be considerably more than 100 years old before he died. The Book of Omni it would appear that when Jerem came to the end of his ministry, he found no truly righteous son to whom he could entrust the sacred records. He therefore was compelled to turn them over to his son Omni in 361 B.C. and apparently just hoped for the best. We are now in the fourth generation of Lehi's descendants. Omni was the son of Jerem making him the grandson of Enos, the great-grandson of Jacob, and the great-great-grandson of Lehi. Behold, it came to pass that I, Omni, being commanded by my father Jerem that I should write somewhat upon these plates to preserve our genealogy. Wherefore in my days I would that ye should know that I fought much with the sword to preserve my people, the Nephites, from falling into the hands of their enemies, the Lamanites. But behold, I of myself am a wicked man, and I have not kept the statutes and the commandments of the Lord, as I ought to have done. Omni says he has been commanded by his father Jerem to write on these plates so they can preserve their genealogy from generation to generation. The word genealogy probably implies a family history or book of remembrance and not merely a genealogical table of names. Omni makes no pretension at being a prophet, priest, or teacher. In fact, he says that he has spent most of his life fighting the Lamanites in order to preserve the Nephite people. He confesses that he himself has been a wicked man and has not kept the statutes and commandments of God the way he should have done. And it came to pass that two hundred and seventy and six years had passed away, and we had many seasons of peace, and we had many seasons of serious war and bloodshed, yea, and in fine, two hundred and eighty and two years had passed away, and I had kept these plates according to the commandments of my fathers, and I conferred them upon my son Amaron, and I make an end. He tells us that 276 years have now passed away since Lehi left Jerusalem, and this brings us down to 323 B.C. This means that Omni did not write anything on these plates until 38 years after he had received them from his father. During this time there were some seasons of peace, but also many seasons of serious war and bloodshed. At this point, Omni apparently stopped writing for six years. Then he tells us 282 years have passed away, which brings us to 317 B.C. Omni tells us nothing new concerning the Nephi, but says he is turning over the plates to his son, Amaron. And now I, Amaron, write the things whatsoever I write, which are few in the book of my father. Behold, it came to pass that three hundred and twenty years had passed away, and the more wicked part of the Nephites were destroyed, 
for the Lord would not suffer after he had led them out of the land of Jerusalem, and kept and preserved them from falling into the hands of their enemies, yea, he would not suffer that the word should not be verified which he spake unto our fathers, saying that, Inasmuch as ye will not keep my commandments, ye shall not prosper in the land. Wherefore the Lord did visit them in great judgment. Nevertheless he did spare the righteous, that they should not perish, but did deliver them out of the hands of their enemies. And it came to pass that I did deliver the plates unto my brother Chemish. Amaron is the fifth generation after Lehi. He apparently waited thirty-eight years before he wrote a single word on the plates which his father had given him. He tells us that three hundred and twenty years have passed away, so we are now talking about 279 B.C. Amaron said the things he would write would be few, and he was right, only 154 words. <laughs> Nevertheless, he seems to have been a more spiritual man than his father for he recognized the hand of the Lord in the catastrophe which struck down the Nephites in his day. He says that during his lifetime the more wicked part of the Nephites were cleansed from the land and destroyed. Amaron did not consider this destruction to have been a mere accident or even a coincidence. He said that after all the Lord had done for the Nephites, he would not suffer that his word would not be verified concerning the afflictions the Nephites would suffer if they were wicked. This is the reason he felt the Lord had destroyed the more wicked parts of the Nephites, as indicated in verse 5, Nevertheless the Lord had spared the righteous. Amaron apparently had no more to say other than the fact that he would now turn the record over to his brother named Chemish. Now I, Chemish, write what few things I write, in the same book with my brother. For behold, I saw the last which he wrote, that he wrote it with his own hand, and he wrote it in the day that he delivered them unto me. And after this manner we keep the records, for it is according to the commandments of our fathers. And I make an end. Now we come to the shortest record of any writer in the whole Book of Mormon. Altogether Chemish wrote only two sentences. Even those are practically wasted effort. He gives us no dates and tells us nothing about himself or any events during his days. Behold, I, Abinadam, am the son of Chemish. Behold, it came to pass that I saw much war and contention between my people, the Nephites, and the Lamanites. And I, with my own sword, have taken the lives of many of the Lamanites in the defense of my brethren. And behold, the record of this people is engraven upon plates which is had by the kings, according to the generations. And I know of no revelation save that which has been written, neither prophecy. Wherefore, that which is sufficient is written. And I make an end. Now in verses 10 and 11, we learn that the next custodian of the plates was named Abinadom, who is the son of Chemish. He tells us that during his lifetime there were great wars between the Nephites and the Lamanites. He himself shed the blood of many Lamanites while defending the land of the Nephites. He says it has been a period in which there have been no new revelations or prophecies. 
the Nephites have apparently had to depend upon those which were already written. The reader can almost sense the dark clouds of wickedness, apostasy, and war which is hovering over the whole land at this time. The righteous are becoming increasingly few, and spiritual blessings have virtually disappeared from among the people. Without giving us any dates or further details, Abinadom ends his writing. Behold, I am Amalekai, the son of Abinadom. Behold, I will speak unto you somewhat concerning Mosiah, who was made king over the land of Zarahemla. For behold, he being warned of the Lord that he should flee out of the land of Nephi, and as many as would hearken unto the voice of the Lord, should also depart out of the land with him into the wilderness. Now with verse 12, we suddenly come upon a whole new epic of the Book of Mormon annals. The writer is Amalekai, son of Abinadom. To appreciate what we are about to relate, we need to remind ourselves that for approximately 350 years, the Nephites had been pinned against a dangerous and forbidding mountain wilderness stretching from the sea east to the sea west. As we shall discover later in this record, this wilderness was so treacherous that whole armies could get lost in it after merely a day or two of travel. It would appear that around 225 B.C., conditions among the Nephites had become so apostate that the Lord decided to lead the righteous out from among them and abandon the rest of the Nephites to their predatory enemies, the Lamanites. This event had been predicted by Jacob some 300 years earlier, as indicated in Jacob chapter 3, verse 4. To lead the righteous through this terrible mountain wilderness, the Lord raised up a prophet named Mosiah. Those who went with him were those who would hearken to the word of warning. As we shall discover later, Amalekai was one of them. We learn from Mosiah chapter 11, verse 13, that there was a prominent foothill near the wilderness where the righteous Nephites gathered together prior to their flight into the wilderness. And it came to pass that he did according as the Lord had commanded him. And they departed out of the land into the wilderness, as many as would hearken unto the voice of the Lord. And they were led by many preachings and prophesyings, and they were admonished continually by the word of God, and they were led by the power of his arm through the wilderness, until they came down into the land which is called the land of Zarahemla. Amalekai says that in order to get to the wilderness, they had to be led with much preaching and prophesying. They were also admonished continually in the word of the Lord. Only by the power of God's arm were they able to get through the wilderness. Finally, they emerged into the great Sidon River Valley, which was an extensive territory just north of the great strip of wilderness, a land which was called Zarahemla. And they discovered a people who were called the people of Zarahemla. Now there was great rejoicing among the people of Zarahemla, and also Zarahemla did rejoice exceedingly, because the Lord had sent the people of Mosiah with the plates of brass which contained the record of the Jews. Behold, it came to pass that Mosiah discovered that the people of Zarahemla came out from Jerusalem at the time that Zedekiah, king of Judah, was carried away captive into Babylon. 
And they journeyed in the wilderness, and were brought by the hand of the Lord across the great waters, into the land where Mosiah discovered them. And they had dwelt there from that time forth. In this new region, Mosiah and his people discovered a whole new civilization, which came to be known to them as the people of Zarahemla. It is rather amazing, but the people of Zarahemla did not fight the Nephites as they came into their territory. They somehow felt that God was responsible for this body of Nephites finding their way into the land of Zarahemla. In fact, the Nephites had brought with them the precious brass plates, and the people of Zarahemla considered this a great treasure. As these two people learned to communicate with each other, Mosiah found that the originators of the people of Zarahemla had come from Jerusalem also, and about the time Zedekiah, the king of Judah, was carried away captive to Babylon. This would have been about 13 years after Lehi left Jerusalem, or 587 B.C. We have only a hint as to which way the people of Zarahemla may have traveled to reach America. At this point, we are simply told that they journeyed to the wilderness and were brought by the hand of the Lord across the great deep and into the territory where Mosiah and his band of Nephites discovered them. That they were brought by the hand of the Lord is the significant thing to be remembered. And at the time that Mosiah discovered them, they had become exceeding numerous. Nevertheless, they had had many wars and serious contentions and had fallen by the sword from time to time. And their language had become corrupted, and they had brought no records with them, and they denied the being of their Creator. And Mosiah, nor the people of Mosiah, could understand them. But it came to pass that Mosiah caused that they should be taught in his language. And it came to pass that after they were taught in the language of Mosiah, Zarahemla gave a genealogy of his fathers according to his memory, and they are written but not in these plates. And it came to pass that the people of Zarahemla and of Mosiah did unite together, and Mosiah was appointed to be their king. The people of Zarahemla had become very numerous, but they had been subjected to civil war and periods of self-destruction like the Lamanites and the Nephites had. Their language had also become corrupted because they had brought no records with them. Their religion had also become corrupted, and they even denied the existence of their Creator. Originally, both the Nephites and the people of Zarahemla had spoken Hebrew. The Nephites kept their language relatively stable because they were a record-keeping people. The people of Zarahemla, however, did not take any records with them, and after nearly 400 years, their language had changed so much that the people of Mosiah could not understand them. To remedy this situation, Mosiah taught them the Hebrew language. Once the two people could communicate together, the king of the people of Zarahemla gave Mosiah his genealogy from memory. This phenomenon of having the people memorize their genealogy is found among a number of ancient peoples. Now it turned out that before long, the people of Mosiah and the people of Zarahemla became one people. They combined and elected a king, and the person they elected amazingly turned out to be Mosiah. 
This was a remarkable development in which an invading people were welcomed by the original inhabitants of a country, and then they voluntarily voted to make one of the invaders their king. The people of Zarahemla were apparently of Jewish extraction. At least they had come out of Jerusalem and brought with them the only surviving son of King Zedekiah, a direct descendant of King David. So from here on, many of these people will constitute a mixture of Manasseh through Lehi, of Ephraim through Ishmael, and Judah through the people of Zarahemla. Some of them will even carry in their veins the royal blood of King David through Mulek. And it came to pass in the days of Mosiah, there was a large stone brought unto him with engravings on it. And he did interpret the engravings by the gift and power of God. And they gave an account of one Coriantumr and the slain of his people. And Coriantumr was discovered by the people of Zarahemla, and he dwelt with them for the space of nine moons. Beginning with verse 20, we are introduced to another sensational development in Book of Mormon history. It turns out that prior to the arrival of Mosiah and his band of Nephites, the people of Zarahemla had discovered that there was a vast civilization north of their own country. The last survivor of this civilization to the north had wandered down into Zarahemla and lived among them for nine months and then died. His name was Coriantumr. This man, of course, was the last survivor of the great Jaredite civilization, which had come to America around 2200 B.C. and had finally been wiped out by civil war. Before the last survivor, that is Coriantumr, had run into the people of Zarahemla, he had apparently given up hope of finding any of his own people alive, and so he had written his biography on a large stone. Afterwards, he wandered down south, ran into the people of Zarahemla, and lived among them until he died nine months later. Eventually, the people of Zarahemla discovered Coriantumr's stone, but he had not lived among them long enough for them to learn his language. Therefore, they could not read the stone. When Mosiah and the Nephites arrived, the people of Zarahemla hoped Mosiah could somehow read the stone and unravel the mystery of Coriantumr and his people. They were not disappointed. Mosiah read the stone because he had the ability to do so through the Urim and Thummim, which had come into his possession just recently. These interpreters had previously belonged to the Jaredite prophets, as indicated in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 17, verse 1. Illustrations of these latest events are depicted in Treasures from the Book of Mormon, volume 2, pages 14 and 15. It also spake a few words concerning his fathers, and his first parents came out from the tower at the time the Lord confounded the language of the people, and the severity of the Lord fell upon them according to his judgments, which are just, and their bones lay scattered in the land northward. On this stone Coriantumr told how his fathers came out from the Tower of Babel at the time the Lord confounded the language of all the people. After coming to America, they had apostatized, and the wrath of the Lord had fallen upon them, so that now their bones lay scattered throughout the land northward. 
At this point, we may have learned something new and exciting about Book of Mormon chronology. It has always been assumed that the Jaredites were wiped out around 600 B.C., just about the time the Nephites arrived in the Promised Land. But now the Book of Mormon seems to be telling us a different story. It tells us that in the not-too-distant past, the last survivor of the Jaredites came into the midst of the people of Zarahemla and dwelt among them for nine moons. Then, rather amazingly, Mosiah I appears on the scene some time later and has in his possession the precious Jaredite Urim and Thummim, which allows him to translate the large flat stone written in the Jaredite language by Coriantumr. These scriptural facts clearly imply that the Jaredites were not destroyed around 600 B.C., but came to an end about the time the Lord transferred the Urim and Thummim from Ether, the last Jaredite prophet, to Mosiah, the Nephite prophet, living in the land southward. There is no scriptural account of this transfer of the Urim and Thummim, but it obviously occurred in the days of Mosiah I. And some time after Corneantomer, the very last Jaredite, had lived briefly with the people of Zarahemla. The exact date of Mosiah's ministry is not given in the Book of Mormon, but it is estimated to have been around 200 B.C. Since he had already received the Jaredite Urim and Thummim, this would suggest that the destruction of the Jaredites had occurred some time earlier, perhaps around 250 B.C., not 600 B.C. Having considered this exciting possibility, let us now continue with the Book of Mormon account as related by Amalekai. Behold, I, Amalekai, was born in the days of Mosiah, and I have lived to see his death, and Benjamin his son reigneth in his stead. And behold, I have seen in the days of King Benjamin a serious war and much bloodshed between the Nephites and the Lamanites. But behold, the Nephites did obtain much advantage over them, yea, insomuch that King Benjamin did drive them out of the land of Zarahemla. Now Amalekai, who is giving us this information, assures us that he is qualified to tell us about these things because he was born in the days of Mosiah and lived to see his death. Of course, the question arises, Was he born before Mosiah left the land of Nephi, or after the migration to the land of Zarahemla? Since he knew so many details about the migration, it would lead us to assume that he was born before the migration took place and actually participated in it. Furthermore, if Amalekai's father, who had custody of the plates, had participated in the trek, no doubt he would have mentioned it. We recall in verse 11 that Amalekai's father closed his writing by saying that he knew of no new revelation or prophecy that hadn't already been written. Therefore, it would appear that Amalekai received the plates before Mosiah was raised up as a prophet, and hence would have been born in the land of Nephi, and would have participated in the great trek across the wilderness and into the land of Zarahemla. At the time Amalekai was writing this account, the king over all the land was named Benjamin. He was the son of Mosiah, who had led the Nephites across the great wilderness up from the land of Nephi into the land of Zarahemla. Amalekai discloses the fact that during the reign of King Benjamin, there had been a terrible conflict between the Nephites and the Lamanites. 
This means that the Lamanites had finally broken through the narrow strip of mountain wilderness and had swept in upon the land of Zarahemla. Nevertheless, the new King Benjamin had succeeded in driving the Lamanites out of Zarahemla and back into their own country. And it came to pass that I began to be old. And having no seed, and knowing King Benjamin to be a just man before the Lord, wherefore I shall deliver up these plates unto him, exhorting all men to come unto God, the Holy One of Israel, and believe in prophesying, and in revelations, and in the ministering of angels, and in the gift of speaking with tongues, and in the gift of interpreting languages, and in all things which are good. For there is nothing which is good, save it comes from the Lord, and that which is evil cometh from the devil. And now, my beloved brethren, I would that ye should come unto Christ, who is the Holy One of Israel, and partake of his salvation, and the power of his redemption. Yea, come unto him, and offer your whole souls as an offering unto him, and continue in fasting and praying, and endure to the end. And as the Lord liveth, ye will be saved. Speaking of himself, Amalekai says he was now very old, but he had not been blessed with any posterity. He therefore decided to give the sacred record to King Benjamin because he was a just man. In closing his record, Amalekai says all men should come unto God and believe in prophecy, revelation, the ministering of angels, the gift of speaking with tongues, the gift of interpreting languages, and all the things that are good. It is interesting that this verse in Alma chapter 9, verse 21, are the only passages in any available scripture from the Old Testament period referring to the gifts of speaking with tongues and interpreting languages. Even though Amalekai lived long before the birth of Christ, he called himself a Christian, and he knew all about the redemption of Jesus Christ. We note that Amalekai was the first righteous custodian of these plates following several generations. And now I would speak somewhat concerning a certain number who went up into the wilderness to return to the land of Nephi. For there was a large number who were desirous to possess the land of their inheritance. Wherefore they went up into the wilderness, and their leader being a strong and mighty man, and a stiff-necked man, wherefore he caused a contention among them, and they were all slain, save fifty in the wilderness, and they returned again to the land of Zarahemla. And it came to pass that they also took others to a considerable number, and took their journey again into the wilderness. And I, Amalekai, had a brother who also went with them and I have not since known concerning them, and I am about to lie down in my grave. And these plates are full, and I make an end of my speaking. Amalekai now adds a postscript to his testimony. He says that about this time an expedition was organized among the people to go back to the land of Nephi. This seems almost insane in view of the recent war with the Lamanites and the fact that God had inspired Mosiah to lead the righteous out of this land. Amalekai says this expedition failed, and that was because of great contentions which arose among their leaders. 
the remnants or survivors returned to Zarahemla. When a second expedition was organized, it included someone very close to Malachi, his brother. But Amalekai had never received any word from him. Amalekai says he feels he is about to die. He also says the small pates are now completely filled up. Now we come to the words of Mormon. At this point, the narrative of the Book of Mormon is suddenly interrupted by Mormon, the compiler of this record, and what he has to tell us is extremely important to further understand the significance of what we have been reading in the first 132 pages of the book. Briefly, here is the story. Sometime prior to 385 A.D., Mormon was energetically abridging the records of the Nephites from the large plates. He had finished down to the reign of King Benjamin around 130 B.C., when he came across the small plates of Nephi. Mormon noticed that these plates cover the same period as that which he had just abridged, but these small plates contained choice prophecies and doctrinal discussions which he had not included in his original abridgment. The Spirit instructed Mormon to stack the small set of plates on top of the abridgment he had just finished. This was puzzling to Mormon because the small plates of Nephi related to the same historical period Mormon had just covered. Actually, the Lord was anticipating a satanical stratagem which would be used against the Book of Mormon record after it came into the hands of Joseph Smith in our own day. The Lord knew it was necessary to have the period down to King Benjamin written twice because the first version would be lost. The Lord therefore arranged to have the small plates of Nephi appear in the record after the version which would be lost. What the Lord had anticipated actually occurred in the summer of 1828. By this time, Joseph Smith had barely completed the translation of the first version of Mormon's abridgment, which extended from Lehi to King Benjamin, and comprised 116 handwritten pages. It was at this point that his scribe, Martin Harris, induced Joseph to let him take the manuscript long enough to show to his wife and certain doubting relatives so they would appreciate the divinity and magnitude of this great book. As the Lord had anticipated, however, these relatives betrayed Martin Harris. They hid the manuscript from him and concocted a plot to change the text so that when Joseph Smith translated the material again, they could discredit his work by claiming he was incapable of translating it the same way the second time. The Lord defeated this plot by forbidding Joseph Smith to translate the material a second time. He told the young prophet to translate the next section of the record, which turned out to be the small plates of Nephi. As we have mentioned, this covered the same period, but provided a quantity of sacred material of a doctrinal and prophetic nature which was not in the first version. Joseph obeyed this instruction, and the translation of the small plates of Nephi now constitute the first 132 pages of the Book of Mormon. This means that everything we have been reading thus far has been the actual words of Lehi, of Nephi, Isaiah, Jacob, Zenos, and the other writers represented in this record. It has not been the abridgment by Mormon. 
From here on, however, we will be reading the words of Mormon as he abridged the records of the Nephites. At certain places, Mormon inserts the sermons and quotations of various individuals, including direct quotations from the Savior. But for the most part, it is Mormon's own writing. Of course, toward the end of the record, the task of finishing the abridgment was turned over to Mormon's son, Moroni, who described some of the events in his own lifetime and then provides a summary of the Jaredite history. Moroni also included a prophetic history of the world as seen and recorded by the brother of Jared, Mahonri Moyankamer, but this was sealed up so that Joseph Smith would know that this was to be translated sometime in the future. As we read the words of Mormon, it is helpful to realize that he was trying to accomplish several things in these brief 18 verses. First of all, he wants to relate the circumstances under which the abridgment was compiled. Secondly, he wants to tell us about the small plates of Nephi and explain how they happen to be incorporated in his record. And number three, he wants to describe the early administration of King Benjamin so as to fill in the historical gap between the early part of the Book of Mormon and that which commences with the Book of Mosiah. And now we come to the words of Mormon. And now, I, Mormon, being about to deliver up the record which I have been making into the hands of my son Moroni, behold, I have witnessed almost all the destruction of my people, the Nephites. And it is many hundred years after the coming of Christ that I deliver these records into the hands of my son. And it supposeth me that he will witness the entire destruction of my people. But may God grant that he may survive them, that he may write somewhat concerning them, and somewhat concerning Christ, that perhaps some day it may profit them. We learn several important things from this first verse. Mormon seems under tremendous pressure to complete his abridgment. He says he is about to deliver the record which he is making to Moroni, his son. Yet at this point he is only about one-fourth finished. Mormon says he has already witnessed nearly the entire destruction of his people. This would imply that Mormon made his abridgment a short time before the great battle of Cumorah. This is supported by a later statement that these plates of Mormon were turned over to Moroni in 385 A.D. After the great final battle, only 24 Nephites were known to have survived, and this included Mormon and Moroni. Mormon himself was severely wounded and apparently did not expect to live long. Therefore, Mormon says he will deliver these records over to the hands of Moroni. Knowing the predicted doom of the Nephites, Mormon speculates that their extinction as a people will be literally fulfilled and that Moroni will witness the entire destruction of the Nephite population. Nevertheless, he prays that God will allow Moroni to survive so that he may record the final outcome. He also wants Moroni to include more information concerning Christ so that when the record comes into the hands of their descendants, it will profit them. In this verse, Mormon exhibits the qualities of both a great historian and a great prophet. And now, I speak somewhat concerning that which I have written, 
For after I had made an abridgment from the plates of Nephi, down to the reign of this King Benjamin, of whom Amalekai spake, I searched among the records which had been delivered into my hands, and I found these plates, which contained this small account of the prophets, from Jacob down to the reign of this King Benjamin, and also many of the words of Nephi. Now Mormon begins explaining what we have already discussed, namely that after he had finished his abridgment down to the reign of King Benjamin, Mormon discovered these plates, which contained a small account of the prophets from Jacob to King Benjamin, and also many of the words of Nephi. And the things which are upon these plates pleasing me, because of the prophecies of the coming of Christ. And my fathers, knowing that many of them have been fulfilled, yea, and I also know that as many things as have been prophesied concerning us down to this day have been fulfilled, and as many as go beyond this day must surely come to pass. Wherefore I chose these things to finish my record upon them, which remainder of my record I shall take from the plates of Nephi. And I cannot write the hundredth part of the things of my people. Mormon says the writings on the small plates are pleasing to him for many reasons, but especially because they contain so many prophecies concerning the coming of Christ. He says that all of the prophecies relating to the past events have been literally fulfilled, and therefore it is safe to conclude the prophecies pertaining to things in the future will also come to pass. But behold, I shall take these plates which contain these prophesyings and revelations, and put them with the remainder of my record, for they are choice unto me, and I know they will be choice unto my brethren. And I do this for a wise purpose, for thus it whispereth me according to the workings of the Spirit of the Lord which is in me. And now I do not know all things, but the Lord knoweth all things which are to come, wherefore he worketh in me to do according to his will. And my prayer to God is concerning my brethren, that they may once again come to the knowledge of God, yea, the redemption of Christ, that they may once again be a delightsome people. In verse 7, Mormon tells us that the Spirit has told him to incorporate the small plates of Nephi in his own record. In verse 5 and 6, Mormon describes the rather complicated procedure he will use to achieve this. Apparently, he is going to stack the small plates on top of the abridgment he has already written. Then he will finish the record on the new plates which he will pile on top of the small plates of Nephi. We know from the book of Omni, verse 30, that the small plates were already full. So we conclude that when Mormon says he will complete his record upon the small plates, it means that additional plates will be constructed on which he will need to inscribe the rest of his record and these will be piled on top of the small plates and then bound together in one volume. Verse 6 bears out this deduction. Mormon says he is combining these plates with the plates of his own record, and in verse 7, Mormon says he is doing this for a wise purpose. He does not know what this purpose is, however. Only the Lord knows. 
Mormon simply follows instructions because he knows that his task is to simply follow the word of the Lord. Before we leave these three verses, it will be recalled that in verse 5, Mormon said he was going to complete the remainder of his abridgment from the plates of Nephi. This has reference to the large plates of Nephi, which contained the comprehensive secular history of the Nephites during nearly a thousand years, from 600 B.C. to 385 A.D. In verse 5, Mormon says the available records are so voluminous that he cannot include even a hundredth part. At the time of Mormon's writings, that is 385 A.D., the Lamanites were a most ferocious and degenerate people. Mormon therefore prays that they may eventually come to a knowledge of God and the redemption of Christ, that they may once again be a delightsome people. And now I, Mormon, proceed to finish out my record, which I take from the plates of Nephi. And I make it according to the knowledge and the understanding which God has given me. Mormon says he will now continue his abridgment from the plates of Nephi, meaning the large plates. Mormon wants us to know that he is no ordinary historian, because he is abridging this material according to the knowledge and understanding which God has given him of all these events. Wherefore it came to pass that after Amalekai had delivered up these plates into the hands of King Benjamin, he took them and put them with the other plates, which contained records which had been handed down by the kings from generation to generation until the days of King Benjamin. And they were handed down from King Benjamin from generation to generation until they have fallen into my hands. And I, Mormon, pray to God that they may be preserved from this time henceforth. And I know that they will be preserved, for there are great things written upon them, out of which my people and their brethren shall be judged at the great and last day, according to the word of God which is written. It will be recalled back in the days of Nephi that he gave the small plates into the hands of his brother Jacob, and these were thereafter kept among Jacob's descendants down to Malachi. Amalekai, however, had no seed, and therefore he turned the plates over to Benjamin, who had custody of the large plates. Mormon says the library of historical plates were handed down from King Benjamin until they finally came into the possession of Mormon. He prays that this precious library will continue to be preserved. In fact, as he thinks about it, he is confident it will be preserved. He knows there are a great many things written in the Nephite records which will serve the purposes of God. And now concerning this King Benjamin, he had somewhat of contentions among his own people. And it came to pass also that the armies of the Lamanites came down out of the land of Nephi to battle against his people. But behold, King Benjamin gathered together his armies, and he did stand against them. And he did fight with the strength of his own arm, with the sword of Laban. Beginning with verse 12, Mormon commences discussing the career of the famous King Benjamin. He says that during the early part of King Benjamin's reign, the Nephites and the people of Zarahemla were plagued with serious contentions among themselves. 
But even more important, they began to be attacked by the Lamanites, and it was King Benjamin who personally took up the sword of Laban and led the Nephites in battle. And in the strength of the Lord they did contend against their enemies, until they had slain many thousands of the Lamanites. And it came to pass that they did contend against the Lamanites until they had driven them out of all the lands of their inheritance. And it came to pass that after there had been false Christs, and their mouths had been shut, and they punished according to their crimes, and after there had been false prophets, and false preachers and teachers among the people, and all these having been punished according to their crimes, and after there having been much contention and many dissensions away unto the Lamanites, Behold, it came to pass that King Benjamin, with the assistance of the holy prophets who were among his people, for behold, King Benjamin was a holy man, and he did reign over his people in righteousness. And there were many holy men in the land, and they did speak the word of God with power and with authority. And they did use much sharpness because of the stiff-neckedness of the people. Wherefore, with the help of these, King Benjamin, by laboring with all the might of his body, and the faculty of his whole soul, and also the prophets, did once more establish peace in the land. In this struggle the Nephites were supported by the Lord, but they had to slay many thousands of the Lamanites. Finally this persistent enemy was driven out of the land. After that the next problem was false Christs. They not only came as wicked impostors, but committed crimes that had to be prosecuted. In addition to false Christ, the land of Zarahemla was put in an uproar as a result of false prophets and false preachers and false teachers. King Benjamin did not ignore them just because they came in the name of religion. The moment they committed overt acts or offenses against the law, he had them punished. As we shall see later, it was the law among the Nephites that each citizen could believe or disbelieve anything he wished. Nevertheless, he could not violate the law, even if it were done as part of his religious convictions. Mormons described King Benjamin as a holy man who reigned over his people in righteousness. He was assisted by other righteous men who joined him in preaching the word of God with power and authority. They were compelled to use much sharpness of language, however, because of the resistance of the people to their message. Nevertheless, King Benjamin, after laboring with all his might and all his soul, did succeed with the help of these other prophets who assisted him in restoring peace among the people. If you liked this podcast and would like access to other materials by W. Cleon Skousen, you can find them online at skousenlibrary.com.